there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. June 1985, 25-year-old mountain climber Joe Simpson dangled in midair, 15 feet from the lip of the cliff and 100 feet from the icy crevasse below. His leg was broken, and his climbing partner, Simon Yates, was trying to gently lower him down the mountain. But they were out of rope and out of mountain. The gentle slope now gave way to a massive drop-off. The wind and snow blowing in their faces made it impossible for them to see or hear one another. The storm was getting worse. Joe knew he needed to act quickly if he didn't want to freeze to death. He tried swinging toward the wall to hook his axe into the ice, but the pain from his broken leg made it excruciatingly difficult. He needed to come up with another plan. Then it dawned on him. He had two pieces of rope he could use to tie a climbing knot onto the rope he was dangling from. This would allow him to shimmy back up to the cliff's edge. It wouldn't be easy. He was exhausted and his hands were frozen. Bending his fingers was nearly impossible, but he had to try. Joe managed to get the first loop around the main rope, but it took 15 minutes, and in that time, his fingers became even more frozen. He needed to push through the pain to get that second loop attached, but as he started wrapping it around the main rope, it slipped. He watched the piece of rope tumble into the crevasse, taking with it his last hope of climbing to safety. He was stranded, hanging in midair, unable to signal his partner. His leg was broken. His fingers were frozen. His survival, unlikely. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. 
I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible, true stories of life-or-death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we begin the harrowing story of Joe Simpson. In June 1985, Joe and his climbing partner, Simon Yates, climb the daunting west face of the Ciula Grande mountain in the Peruvian Andes. On their descent, Joe broke his leg, and Simon was forced to try and help him crawl back down the mountain using ropes. Next week, we'll find out if Joe survived or if Simon left him to his fate in the frozen tundra of the Andes. Born in Malaysia in 1960, Joe Simpson spent his early life traveling back and forth between Britain and other countries due to his father's service in the British Army. While attending boarding school, the 14-year-old Joe read The White Spider by Austrian mountain climber Heinrich Hara. In July 1938, Hara, along with three others, became the first climbers to summit the north face of the Eiger, a 13,000-foot mountain in the Alps. Known as the Murder Wall, the north face had claimed the lives of several climbers before them. But Hara and his group made history by being the first to reach the top. As young Joe read of Heinrich's expedition, he imagined himself dodging the avalanches and clamping himself to the side of the nearly vertical mountain wall. When he read about Hara's team reaching the summit and standing at what seemed like the top of the world, all he could think about was doing the exact same thing one day. He was hooked. He needed to climb. By the time he reached his early 20s, Joe had moved to Sheffield and joined its active climbing community. Sheffield sits near the Peak District, part of the Pennines Range in northern England. It offered the young mountaineer the chance to sate his hunger for climbing. It was around this time that he met 18-year-old Simon Yates. They quickly became friends and climbing partners, traveling the world in search of challenging peaks. The danger of climbing never seemed to bother either Joe or Simon, but their carefree attitudes made the danger no less real. Joe, in particular, had his fair share of life-threatening climbs. In 1981, Joe climbed the 12,600-foot Le Corte Mountain in the French Alps. As he was climbing, his attention was suddenly caught by the sound of a loud rumbling. He looked up, just in time, to see giant slabs of snow heading directly toward him. It was an avalanche, and he was trapped. The snow was coming so fast that he was swept up and carried 2,000 feet down the side of the mountain. Avalanches often arrive without warning, 
making them especially dangerous. However, if push comes to shove, it's actually possible to survive by swimming through them. This means to either turn and backstroke on top of the moving snow, or swim for the side, as if you were trying to get out of a rip curl in the ocean. It also helps to find a tree to hold onto, as the strong roots are unlikely to be wrenched free by the cascading snow. In Joe's case, he found a rock to hide behind. He managed to survive with only a concussion. His next near-fatal climb occurred two years later, in 1983 at Les Drew. On the 23rd of July, 23-year-old Joe climbed the mountain with friend and fellow mountaineer Ian Whitaker. Les Drew is a steep 12,316-foot rock. The southwest face is 2,000 feet of sheer granite known as the Bonatti Pillar. The pillar was named after Walter Bonatti, an Italian climber who soloed the mountain in five days in 1955. Joe and Ian were in the middle of climbing the Bonatti Pillar when night fell. Both men knew they couldn't continue to climb in the dark, so they made camp by attaching themselves to the side of the mountain in bivouac bags. Mountain climbers use small, tent-like shelters called bivouac bags because they're lightweight, easy to assemble, and have just enough room to fit a person in a sleeping bag. The danger, of course, is that if they're not properly fastened to the mountain wall, a climber could easily plummet to their death. Luckily for Joe and Ian, they had found a ledge to use as a resting spot. However, they were still exposed to the elements. No sooner had they both laid down to rest than they were suddenly awakened by the sound of falling rocks. Les Drew is known for its sudden rock slides that often alter the face of the mountain and change climbing routes. When the rocks began to fall on top of Joe and Ian, both men suddenly found themselves tumbling down the mountain. Joe blindly reached out for something to grab. He managed to grasp onto a sturdy ledge. Both men were also attached to a rope that was tied to a man-made handrail. It miraculously stopped them from falling to their deaths. But when they looked around, they realized that the bag with all their gear had fallen to the base of the mountain. They were 2,000 feet above ground, with only a single rope holding them to the side of a vertical granite wall. And things quickly got worse from there. The rope holding them up began to shift. Flashing their headlamps toward the handrail revealed that it was starting to come loose. Both Joe and Ian cursed under their breath. At any point, the handrail could give and leave them tumbling into the darkness. Both agreed it would be wise for them to be very still until help arrived. It would be 12 hours before that happened. Joe and Ian dangled on the side of Les Drew until a helicopter spotted them the next day. Most people would have taken these near-death experiences as a sign they should find a new hobby. But for Joe Simpson, it only fueled his desire to climb higher and tougher mountains. 
Like Heinrich Hara, Joe wanted to be the first to summit a mountain where many had failed. He set his sights on South America and a mountain range even more dangerous and treacherous than the Alps, the Andes. Roughly 4,500 miles long, the Andes Mountains are the longest range in the world and boast some of the highest peaks as well, averaging 13,000 feet above sea level. Stretching along the western side of the continent, the range runs through seven countries, Chile, Peru, Bolivia, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Argentina. The mountains are a climber's paradise. The Peruvian Andes, in particular, offer some of the most jaw-dropping scenery, and climbers rush to conquer the difficult routes. Roughly 67 miles from the city of Huaraz lies the majestic 18-mile chain known as the Cordillera Waiwash. A particular favorite among outdoor enthusiasts, the Cordillera Waiwash is known for its beautiful, jagged peaks and clear lakes. While it's not the tallest peak in the range, the Ciula Grande, standing at 20,814 feet above sea level, has a reputation for being one of the hardest mountains to ascend. The first people to make it to the top were Austrian climbers Arnold Averzka and Erwin Schneider in 1936. Another successful summit was made by German climbers in 1966. Both of these sets of climbers used the North Ridge route, which, although difficult, wasn't the hardest path to the top. That honor belonged to the West Face, a route that was believed to be near impossible. By 1985, several climbers had attempted the West Face route, but all had failed. 25-year-old Joe Simpson wanted to be the one to do it, to conquer the unconquerable. Joe asked his old climbing friend, 21-year-old Simon Yates, to accompany him on the daunting mission. What Joe liked about Simon was his carefree attitude. Climbing with Simon was easy because he didn't complain. If something got in his way, he'd figure out how to surpass the obstacle, and usually with a sense of humor. And Joe trusted Simon, trusted him to make the right decisions when faced with certain death. Like many of his previous expeditions, including the near-fatal French Alps climbs, Joe was about to engage in a mixture of alpine and ice climbing. Alpine climbing is a style of mountaineering that involves ascending extremely high altitudes, like the Matterhorn or Everest. These climbs usually take several days to accomplish and weeks of preparation. And because Ciula Grande was over 20,000 feet high, Joe and Simon would also be traversing ice. This added an extra element of danger to their mission, not only because of the cold weather, but because of the slickness of the terrain. It required them to carry extra gear like pickaxes and sharpened cleats known as crampons. 
Many high-altitude mountains, including the Andes Range, feature glaciers that need to be traversed to reach the summit. Glaciers are a collection of snow that, over several years, compress into a giant mass of ice. They are constantly moving, albeit at a slow pace. Even for the most experienced of climbers, they are extremely dangerous. Many glaciers have large ice pillars called seracs, which are known to spontaneously crack or fall without warning. But the biggest risk are the crevasses, large, deep fractures within the glacier. Sometimes these fractures can become so large that climbers can't cross over them, or so deep that if a climber falls in, they can't climb out. To add to the danger, when snow collects, it can create a snow bridge over the crevasse. An unsuspecting climber could walk over the snow bridge without realizing it and fall straight through into the crevasse. Joe and Simon were well aware of these risks, but they would not be deterred. Joe knew that tackling the mountain had led to the deaths of others. But he was determined to leave his mark on climbing history. He would reach the summit, or die trying. Coming up, Joe and Simon begin their ascent. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video, and of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com/Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. In the middle of May 1985, 25-year-old Joe Simpson and 21-year-old Simon Yates flew to Peru to climb the west face of the Ciula Grande in the Andes. Very few climbers had ever reached the summit of the 21,000-foot mountain, and those who did had never climbed the western face. Joe and Simon were determined to change that. On their way to the base of the Ciula Grande, the two climbers stopped at a dingy hotel in Lima, Peru. They made the acquaintance of a fellow Brit named Richard Hawking, who was in the middle of a six-month-long tour of South America. Richard traveled the world whenever he could, and he had stories to tell. He watched a shoplifter be kicked to death in Nairobi. In Uganda, his traveling partner was shot by a soldier over a dispute about cassette tapes. After getting to know Richard a little bit more, Joe and Simon invited him to come and watch their base camp. Peru in the 1980s was in the midst of a violent political struggle, and while Joe and Simon didn't fear being in the middle of the violence, they were worried about theft. 
The two young men trusted Richard, who seemed like he could handle himself in dangerous situations. So sometime around May 19, 1985, Joe, Simon, and Richard made their base camp in a valley among the beautiful clear lakes. On May 20th, Joe and Simon began their rigorous 10-day acclimatization process. When climbing extremely high mountains, it's necessary to acclimate yourself to avoid altitude sickness, which can lead to heavy vomiting, dizziness, fatigue, an inability to walk, and fluid buildup in the lungs. The consequences can be deadly. Joe and Simon's first day of acclimating consisted of climbing the Rosario Norte, a roughly 18,400-foot mountain near base camp. They set off at the crack of dawn and soon realized that climbing at that altitude was a little easier than they had expected. For Joe, it was a good sign that once they were ready to tackle the Ciula Grande, neither of the pair would slow each other down. In the middle of their climb, Joe and Simon took a break in a coal, a gap between two ridges. As Simon made a cup of something hot to drink using a portable gas stove, Joe found himself marveling at the beauty of the Cordillera Waiwash. The chain of peaks towered over them, and he was able to point each one out. Rasak, 19,741 feet. Seria Norte, 19,226 feet. Yerupaha, 21,768 feet. And finally, the reason they were there, the Ciula Grande, 20,814 feet. As they sipped from their steaming thermoses, it dawned on them that at 18,000 feet, they were at the highest point either of them had ever climbed. It was surreal, yet exciting. Neither had really thought about it much, given the even more massive task before them. It gave him a boost in confidence that the Ciula Grande would be attainable. After their break, they decided to head back to camp rather than press on to the summit of Rosario Norte. They wanted to save their energy. The next day, they planned on climbing the south ridge of the Cerro Yantauri. During the push for Cerro Yantauri, they paid close attention to the weather. As clouds built up around the mountains, they were unsure if it signaled dangerous storms or if it was just a light snow. Being able to read the weather is extremely important while mountain climbing. Cumulonimbus clouds, the large, dark, foreboding clouds, could signal heavy rain, snow, or hail. During a storm, being surrounded by these clouds obscures your vision. One small misstep can lead to falling off the side of the mountain. But on Yontari, Joe and Simon only faced stratus clouds, which produce only light rain or snowfall, weather that's much more manageable. After Cerro Yantari, they attempted to summit the south ridge of Seria Norte. Joe had heard from a friend in England that this ridge was a little difficult to climb. 
The friend was wrong. It was impossible to climb. The route contained a chain of ice cornices, dangerous ledges of overhanging ice and snow that, if hit with an axe, would come toppling down. Not only would it be dangerous to have to dodge these large chunks of ice, but the threat of an avalanche loomed as well. Joe recalled his last avalanche experience in the French Alps and knew better than to tempt fate again. The pair headed back down before reaching the summit. Joe and Simon had now climbed three mountains during their acclimatization process, and they both felt adjusted enough. While they waited for a day with clear weather to start their mission, they packed their bags and took stock of their equipment. Crampons, axes, stakes, screws, stoves, food, gloves, foam mattress, and sleeping bags. They decided to leave the tent behind to clear some weight. Instead, they would make small snow caves when they needed to rest. But as they waited, a sense of fear started to grip Joe. The silence on the side of the mountain could be deafening. On his three earlier climbs, the solitude had calmed him. Now, as they inch closer to their attempt of the Ciula Grande, that calmness was replaced by anxiety. But Joe knew this was what he wanted, no, what he needed to accomplish. All his past ascents had led to this moment. It didn't matter how many lives Ciula Grande had claimed. There was no turning back now. In the afternoon of June 4th, 1985, Joe and Simon began their ascent of Ciula Grande. Richard decided to join them up until they reached the start of the glacier, which was about an hour from base camp. From here, it would probably be about a five-day excursion, given the difficulty of the mountain. Before they set off, they joked that Richard could keep their gear if they weren't back within a week. Richard took their pictures and proclaimed, you never know, I might make a fortune selling them as obituary photos. If only Richard knew how close he was to fulfilling that prophecy, he may not have made that joke. Joe and Simon said goodbye to Richard and pushed their way through the boulders, making their way to the foot of the glacier. They made a snow hole to rest for the night and prepared to wake up early the next morning. Day one began at about 5 a.m. After warming themselves up and tying their ropes together, Simon tackled the ice wall first. He slammed his ice axes in and lifted himself up, then kicked his crampons into the wall, like he was climbing a ladder without the ladder. It took him no time at all. Soon, it was Joe's turn. He had the advantage of being attached to Simon, so if he were to fall, Simon would be able to hold on and anchor him down. To their surprise, the ice was solid, a good sign that the rest of the way up should be fairly easy. But the ice field, or the top of the glacier, was much longer than they had anticipated. As they reached 2,000 feet, Joe began to wonder if the ice field was ever going to end. At around noon, they stopped for a lunch break. 
Looking down, Joe could no longer see the snow hole where they had spent the night. He turned around and looked for the gully where they had planned to camp the following night, but everything blended together in the endless white. He realized sundown was in six hours. They didn't have any time to waste. Joe took the lead until the first belay, the point where a climber anchors and waits for their partner to catch up. As they ascended, the ice became more fragile and large chunks began to fall directly on top of Simon. Annoyed at having to dodge the ice, Simon decided to move up front. They continued on, but what began as an easygoing trek turned dangerous in the afternoon. At around 18,800 feet, chunks of ice began to fall again, this time over Joe. He looked to see if they were coming from Simon's axe or crampons, but he saw that his partner was over to the right. Joe's eyes shifted, and he saw that they were right under several cornices, some 40 feet in length. Cracks were beginning to form. At any moment, they could come crashing down and send Joe and Simon tumbling down the mountain. Soon, rocks began to fall along with the ice. The two quickened their pace, dodging the debris as best they could. Joe heard a rumbling. He looked up and saw a four-foot boulder barreling toward him. He narrowly dodged it, but watched as it hit Simon head on. The rocks kept falling. Joe closed his eyes and leaned against the mountain wall. When it stopped, he finally opened his eyes. He could see Simon hugging the side of the mountain, half buried in rocks. He shouted to ask if Simon was okay. Miraculously, he was. Aside from the boulder, most of the rocks had been small and Simon had been firmly clamped into the mountain. It had been an incredibly close call. Thankfully, they could now see the target gully ahead and continue their ascent. But as night fell, they still hadn't reached the gully. The lack of light made it difficult to judge distance, and they had no idea how much further they had to go. It was time to call it a night. As they snuggled into a new snow cave, memories of the avalanche at Les Drew washed over Joe. All he could do was close his eyes and hope that when he opened them the next morning, he'd find himself in the same spot. On the morning of day two, Joe and Simon calculated that they were about 19,000 feet up and had 2,000 more feet to go before they reached the summit. It seemed doable given that they had covered 2,500 feet the day before, but their optimism waned when they spotted several seracs, tall columns of ice and snow, blocking their way 1,000 feet ahead. Dehydration and the thinning air slowed their climb, but after four and a half hours, they reached the Serac barrier. Now the question was how to get around it. Searching along the barrier, Simon found an ice cascade or a frozen waterfall. It looked like the most solid surface available for them to climb. Simon went first, 
but one of the rope holds loosened. He fell toward the ground, but thankfully, another rope held, and it caught him after only a few feet. Next, Joe decided to give it a shot. About 25 feet up the cascade, there were five-foot-long icicles that needed to be broken before they could continue on. As Joe climbed, he carelessly swung his axe at the icicles, and chunks fell right into his face. He suffered a split lip, but he kept going. With the icicles cleared, he was able to make it to the top of the cascade. Simon quickly followed after him. At the top, they were finally able to see the summit, less than a thousand feet in front of them. What should have been a joyous moment quickly turned sour. A snowstorm was building all around them. When storms come at this altitude, the temperature drops drastically. Staying out in the open for too long can risk hypothermia. And if massive gusts of wind arrive, staying clamped into the mountain is crucial. Continuing their climb during poor weather could instantly turn fatal. Despite the snowfall, they kept going for a while, but it became clear that they weren't going to make it to the summit before dark. The snow was getting increasingly worse, hampering their visibility. In almost five hours, they had climbed a mere 200 feet. As darkness fell, they knew they needed to make another snow cave to rest and protect themselves from freezing. By insulating from the cold and wind, snow caves can reach up to 32 degrees Fahrenheit inside, much warmer than the negative 40 degrees that Joe and Simon were experiencing on the mountainside. About 300 feet from the summit, they stopped to settle in for the night. By 11 p.m., they had finished the last frozen meals in their packs. Joe fell asleep, hoping that the next morning would bring with it a clear, sunny day. He got his wish. When he opened his eyes on day three, the weather was perfect. No wind, no snow, just sunshine peeking through their cave. But as he climbed out, he saw that below and above them, powdered snow had created rugged channels called flutings. The flutings were anything but stable. At any moment, they could give way and send Joe and Simon tumbling down the mountain. But what scared Joe and Simon even more was the possibility that the flutings would crumble after they passed, which would leave them trapped on the summit. Slowly and carefully, they made their way up the flutings, fearing that each step could be their last. By about 2 p.m., they had safely made it to the top of the ridge. They were just 100 feet from the summit. Elated, the two snapped a few pictures, dropped their backpacks, and made their way up to the highest point on the mountain. In no time at all, they were there. On June 7, 1985, Joe Simpson and Simon Yates made history, becoming the first climbers to reach the summit of Ciula Grande via the West Face. They had completed the impossible task in just three days. Ironically, Joe never really cared for summits. 
there was always an anticlimactic feeling that came from reaching the top. Now, all he could think about was, what now? What next? What's next was the descent, where roughly 80% of climbing accidents occur. After days of exhaustion, a single misplaced foot could lead to disaster. As Joe gazed out across the beautiful Andes, he knew their mission was only half over. He snapped out of his trance when Simon said, looks like we're in for another storm. Clouds were forming from the east face and making their way towards them. The first flakes of snow began to fall on their jackets. They had maybe an hour to make it under the summit before dark. Coming up, Joe and Simon begin their descent down Ciula Grande, only to find themselves lost in a whiteout. Now back to the story. On June 7, 1985, Joe Simpson and Simon Yates accomplished the unthinkable and made it to the summit of Ciula Grande by way of the West Face. A little after 2 p.m., they began their dangerous descent, just as imposing clouds started to roll in their direction. Descents, in general, are when most climbing accidents occur. As was the case with Joe and Simon, many climbers will have limited to no food remaining and sparse clean water. Inexperienced climbers will rush to get down the mountain and slip and fall. And if the weather turns torrential, their surroundings can become lost in the storm. Joe and Simon had chosen to descend via the North Ridge and make their way to a coal between Ciula Grande and Yurupaha. But walking along the ridge proved to be much more dangerous than they anticipated. On one side, the mountain face was covered with cornices. On the other were flutings. A single misstep could mean death. Within 45 minutes of leaving the summit, the clouds had completely overtaken the mountain. Joe and Simon were lost in a whiteout. Snow was everywhere, and neither was able to tell the difference between the ground and the sky. They decided to stop and get their bearings. After a few minutes, the sun finally appeared, and the shadows of the ridge became visible. Simon decided to climb up toward the ridge while Joe stayed behind. As Simon disappeared into the white, Joe could still feel him at the other end of the rope, sliding through his gloves. Fear began to hit him again as he stood alone in the sea of white. The ascent, it turned out, had been their primary focus. They hadn't bothered to plan the descent. All of a sudden, the rope lurched in Joe's hands. He heard a sudden crash. Simon had walked onto a corniced ridge. The ledge suddenly gave way and a bevy of snow and ice toppled down the mountain. Thankfully, Simon didn't fall with it because he was tethered to Joe by the rope. Fifteen minutes later, Simon found his way back to Joe. By then, night was creeping in 
and fast. They needed to get off the mountain. Simon led and Joe followed, trying to stay in step with his tracks as they made their way through gullies and flutings. By 5 p.m., the wind had picked up and the temperature had dropped considerably. The snowfall grew heavier with each step they took. In the three hours of whiteout, they had barely covered 200 feet. As they navigated down a gully, Joe slipped and crashed into Simon, nearly sending him over the ridge. After that, they decided it was time to call it a day. Clearly, they weren't going to make it back to base camp that night, so they dug a snow cave for shelter. Simon's headlamp had gone out, and to fix it, he had to take his fingers out of his gloves. By now, the temperature was minus 20 degrees, and it didn't take long for two of his fingers to show signs of frostbite. When frostbite affects the fingers, being able to grip axes or rocks becomes near impossible and adds another element of danger to the climb. While Simon inspected his fingers, Joe dug the cave. He continuously hit rocks, which meant the cave would have to be shallow, leaving them exposed. After peppering the side of the ridge with unfinished holes, Joe finally built a serviceable cave, climbed inside, and prepared a meal of chocolate, dried fruit, and juice. As they stretched out to sleep, Joe and Simon hoped that the worst was behind them. In the morning, if the weather was clear, they'd be able to make it to base camp by the afternoon. Still, anxiety kept Joe awake. He thought of how he'd stumbled into Simon that evening. They still had been linked together, and if Simon had fallen, Joe would have tumbled after him. The last thing he wanted was to be responsible for both of their deaths. Tomorrow, he would need to be more careful. The next morning, day four, Joe used the last of the gas for the stove to boil some water. With the gas gone, clean water was no longer an option until they reached base camp, which they thought they could do by afternoon. While eating snow in lieu of water is safe, at the altitude Joe and Simon were at, eating the cold snow could lead to hypothermia. While waiting for Simon to get ready, Joe took a moment to look at his surroundings. It was the first time in four days that he didn't feel tense. Even back on the summit, the fear of the descent had lingered. But now, as he marveled at the beauty in the morning sun, he was finally happy. Then he turned and saw Simon's hands. One fingertip was completely black, and a couple more were completely frozen. Gripping the axes and ropes was going to be much harder. But sitting around wouldn't help anything. The weather was in their favor. They had to take advantage of it. Joe led the way, a rope's length away from Simon. Just a bit further down, he stumbled upon a cliff. From the edge, he could make out the south ridge of the nearby Yerupaha mountain. If they made it to the coal or gap between the two, their descent would be much easier. 
but the trick was to make it to the coal. Their best shot would be to reverse climb down a strong portion of the ice wall over the cliff. After a quick search, Joe found exactly what he was looking for. And better yet, the near vertical portion of the cliff was only about 20 feet high. Joe could get down in no time, and Simon would be able to follow in his steps. Joe got on all fours, slammed both his axes into the ground, and lowered himself over the edge, digging his crampons into the vertical ice wall. He removed the right axe, slammed it in near the lip of the cliff, and lowered himself a little bit further down. When he went to do it again with the left axe, it wasn't catching. He needed to hammer it in a few times to make sure it was secure. When he finally got a deep blow into the wall, it made a sharp crack. The move forced him to lose his balance. The next thing he knew, he was free-falling. When Joe hit the ground, he felt his bones split and his knee shatter. He kept falling down the slope until suddenly he stopped. He could feel a sharp burning pain course through his thigh. He cried out, instantly realizing what had just happened. He had broken his right leg. This was his death note. There was no way he was going to make it down with a broken leg. That realization hit even harder when he saw that they were at the same level as the peak of the nearby Rossock Mountain, which meant they were still well above 19,000 feet. Tears began to trickle down Joe's face as he braced himself for the inevitable. Then, suddenly, the rope attached to him went slack. Simon was on his way down. When he found out what had happened, he could easily leave Joe behind to save himself. Joe debated what to tell him. Should I lie and say it was a minor fracture? Should I actually tell the truth? When Simon appeared over the side of the cliff, the look on Joe's face told him everything he needed to know. He asked if Joe was okay. Joe told the truth. Simon made his way down to Joe and gave him a couple of painkillers. Joe could read Simon's face. He was thinking about leaving him. But after a few moments, his thoughts changed course. Now he was trying to figure out how to get Joe down the mountain with a broken leg. Looking at their gear, a plan began to form. They had two 150-foot ropes, giving them a total of 300 feet. After tying both ropes together, they each tied an end to themselves. Now, Simon was able to anchor himself into the snow and slowly lower Joe down the mountain. Joe would lie on his stomach and try to use his axes to control his speed. There was a minor hitch to the plan the knot that joined the two ropes together. Simon threaded the rope through a belay plate to steady it, but once the end of the first rope came, the knot was too big to slide through the plate. In order to bypass the knot, Simon had to manually clip the rope in and out of the plate. And the tight tension of the rope 
meant that Joe had to stand up on both legs to give Simon enough slack to move the knot. It hurt, but it was the only option they had, so they got to work. While Joe had hoped to go at a slow pace, Simon lowered him quickly. This caused Joe's boot to get caught in the snow, searing pain shot through his broken leg. But he understood why Simon was going so fast. The weather was once again taking a turn. Clouds were forming and the temperature was dropping. Joe slid down the slope on his chest and stomach, which meant snow was constantly kicked into his face. Soon, his nose and chin were numb, and his fingers, holding on to the ice axes to control his speed, had started to freeze. At around 4 p.m., they reached a coal and took a short break to see what lay ahead. Despite the worsening weather, they could finally see the glacier where their journey had begun four days earlier. It was still another 3,000 feet below them, and it meant that their descent had taken them back to the difficult west face. But they decided to forge ahead. Better to take a risky route down the mountain than to be trapped in a storm. Lowering Joe past the coal proved a lot more difficult than they had anticipated. The slope was much steeper than before, and Joe couldn't control his speed. Small avalanches of snow toppled over him as he slid past. After seven maneuvers of lowering, as Simon was getting the rope ready for the eighth, they realized they were almost there. They estimated they had maybe two more movements to go, possibly even just one. As they began the next haul, Joe could feel the ground change from snow to ice, and the slope was becoming much steeper. He was falling fast, too fast. He tried yelling at Simon, but Simon couldn't hear him. He slammed his axe into the ice, but it wouldn't catch. Suddenly, Joe was tumbling in midair. His whole body jerked to a stop as snow washed over him. He had gone over the edge of a cliff and was now dangling in the air. Then he started to fall again. Simon didn't even realize Joe had fallen. When the rope stopped, he tugged at it, the signal that Joe should free up some weight so he could move the knot again. That wasn't an option. Joe was dangling over the side of the cliff, suspended in space, 100 feet above a deep crevasse. The pause gave Joe time to look around, and he panicked. Joe wildly swung his axes toward the ice wall in front of him. He was about six feet away, and they refused to latch on. He realized that the only way out was if he climbed up the rope. He had two loops of tied rope attached to his waist that he could use to make a prusik knot, a type of friction hitch that loops one rope around another. The tension between the two ropes would form a kind of sling, suspending his waist to the main rope. With his frozen hands, he was able to get the first prusik knot attached to the rope. But as he tried to fasten the second, 
the piece of rope slipped from his grip and fell into the darkness below. Up above, Simon felt a sudden jerk on the rope and more weight in his hands. He knew it meant something had happened, but he wasn't sure what. Perhaps Joe was resting on a rock. The minutes began to tick. 10 minutes, 20, 40, 60. No movement. Simon still had no indication that Joe had fallen over the side of the cliff. What he did know was that he was exhausted. He struggled desperately to hold on to the rope, but Joe's dead weight made it harder with every passing minute. His hands were numb. He was covered in snow. He had no feeling in his frostbitten fingers, and his chapped face made it impossible to keep his eyes open. Exhaustion was kicking in. He felt himself being pulled forward. It dawned on him that the powdery snow was giving way underneath him. Then the rope shook uncontrollably in his gloves. His arms were beginning to spasm. After 90 minutes sitting in the same spot, he wasn't sure how much more strength he had left. He tried to pull on the rope, tried to muster all he could to lift his friend. But he couldn't. He was drained, defeated. He had to make a decision. Stay here and die. Or abandon Joe and survive. Next week, we'll conclude the harrowing tale of Joe Simpson as he faces certain death on the mountain. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found Touching the Void by Joe Simpson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Survival for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Survival was written by Joe Guerra and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 